to the Murdoch podcast, where we look at some of the mm, little little extras in the show, going episode by episode. Where and we we do a little research, we do a little goog on stuff mm-hmm. that gets discussed in the show, while also talking about the show. I don't know. I feel like I described that badly, but you know what? It's in our podcast description. So if you haven't like gotten with it. What episode are we on now? Eight. Eight. We are seasoned at this point. Mm. We've been doing this less than two months. (laughs) (laughs) So long. (laughs) We're basically wizened ancients at this. Oh my gosh, yes. You know or you don't. Anyways, we basically look at little, little historical nuggets inventions, scientific discoveries, what have you, that get mentioned in the show Murdoch Mysteries on CBC. Woohoo! <laughs> so, um, I'm a little loopy because I'm, like, really jacked up on matcha tea right now. <laughs> you, you, you had a quite strong serving. Yeah, it was fresh to death. I'm not used to having matcha tea that that's fresh. That's that fresh and powerful. I guess I'm not either. I've had matcha sitting in my free fridge, fridge, not fridge, cupboard for like a year. Oh my God. When you said that, I was terrified. I was like, should I be fridging it? I mean, maybe. But I I feel like I I read something like there was there was some product that I looked at that was matcha that told me to refrigerate it. I don't think I ever did. I mean, you refrigerate coffee to make it last longer too. So, ooh, I had not thought about that. Maybe I should be putting my matcha in the fridge. You tell me. <laughs> Send us a tweet. <laughs> I mean, we could goog it. Oh, we could. I could. I, I could think just... I said that too many times for three minutes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. Yes, today we are talking about season one, episode eight, Still Waters. Uh, it was my job to go over the recap for it this week. Ivy, without any further ado, should I just get into it? I mean, yeah, unless we want to talk about WandaVision. Um, I have not seen it. Okay. I have tr- been avoiding Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've been on Twitter, but I scroll past a lot of stuff because it mm-hmm. just seems like it's all WandaVision jokes and spoilers that I don't understand. Why yeah. does Vision look like the rock from that one photo with the thick gold chain and the turtleneck? <laughs> I don't oh know. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Do you know that photo? Yeah, I know that photo, but I don't remember Vision looking like it. But maybe huh. I... I wonder if that chain was superimposed in all the memes that I was seeing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually know. That sounds like more I said, likely. I haven't to seen be it, <laughs> but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I I may not have been paying the best of in- attention, especially like because of the way like the intros for each episode work. You know, a lot of them will be like clips, like fast clips that have that then you don't see in the show. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. So it might have been one of those things. Like, that's where most of the costumes actually are, is in those, like, fast cuts that make up the the stylized intro. Wow, I really know nothing about this show, do I? Dude, it is 
It's pretty good. Okay. I mean, I mean, it's still Marvel, and I mean, I haven't had a lot of experience with the MCU, but mm-hmm. but I have, you know, kind of come to expect that Marvel is always going to be a little bit unsatisfying in some way. I don't know, at least for me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. WandaVision was good, but of course it mm-hmm. was still a, a Marvel story, right? Like, it still mm-hmm. had an element of, like, was all this trouble worth it <laughs> for the way that it ended? You know, that oh, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know how best to describe that that sense of of what I'm saying. But it was still really good. And it was, like, for me, the biggest draw was these stylized episodes that, mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't know, basically each episode is kind of designed based off of a a different era of sitcom television okay so like that's why some of the episodes are in black and white and then it moves into color and so on okay so should i watch it what what do you think yeah okay because it's also not that long at all it's like um nine episodes the last two are longer than the rest but each episode is like 30 minutes Mm -hmm. so altogether it's actually pretty quick for a tv show and I, like I said, I'm not, like, that familiar with the rest of the MCU. So, like, me and my mom watching it, my mom felt like she was missing vital information. But mm. I don't think necessarily that that was so. I think whatever they're keeping from you, they are keeping from you on purpose, right? Mm. That kind mm. of thing. Hmm. Okay. Anyways, was really good. I mostly like it as, like, a meta thing mm-hmm. makes it the funnest also paul bettany is really like attractive <laughs> and so is elizabeth olsen to be honest <laughs> all right conclusion i'll check it out yeah okay so why don't you go for your your recap that you worked on yes i wrote up a recap of the episode lots of spoilers so if you want to watch, the, if you want to pause, watch the episode, you can, or you don't have to, you can just listen to my sultry tones and you'll get everything you need to know. So Richard Hartley, the newest member of the King's Rowing Club team is found dead on the riverbank. The King's Club has many prominent families as club members, including the Fairchilds and the Hartleys. We also learned that Julia Ogden's family remembers. Uh, She helps Murdoch a few times with the case, easing his access to the prestigious club and calling upon one of her old friends to show Murdoch the ropes. So Hartley, the deceased, was found covered in bruises, a cut on his foot, but ultimately having been drowned as the cause of death. Through Murdoch's investigations, he learned that there was an initiation for new members of the rowing club, and his initiation was the cause of his terrible contusions. The initiation, however, was bloodier than normal. We learned through the use of Murdoch's pneumograph, an early-stage lie detector, that the rowing team's coach had asked the boys to go hard on Hartley during the initiation, hoping to put him out of commission. Apparently, Hartley, from an extremely well-off family, had wanted onto the rowing team, and as they say in the show, you don't say no to a Hartley. So he'd gotten his way and been accepted on the team. But he was, by all accounts, a terrible rower. The team had been training for the Summer Olympics, and the coach was certain that Hartley would have cost them their placement. 
Because of this, the coach had devised Hartley's beating as a means of either scaring him off the team or hurting him badly enough that he couldn't compete. Well, it didn't work, but they also didn't kill him. Uh, they beat him, and then Hartley fled, jumping into the river, and the teammates never saw him again. Uh, we know Hartley drowned, but by the looks of the earth underneath his fingernails, he managed to escape the river that night. He had a meeting at one of the King's Club guest houses, planned with his fiance. Oh my god, what was her name? Was it Lucy? His, his fiance. Minerva. Her name was Minerva? Minerva Fairchild? Yeah. Oh my god, okay. I remember it distinctly because it's such a strong name. Why did I think her name was Lucy? No idea. <laughs> I, I had forgotten to put her first name into my notes. I meant to look it up and then forgot. Yes, Minerva. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm obsessed with her. So that's also why I remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So where was I? Hartley had a meeting at one of the King's Club guest houses planned with his fiancée, Minerva Fairchild. She finally confesses to having seen Hartley after his initiation gone awry at the guest house. She says that when Hartley finally arrived late, she broke off her engagement with him and, in typical you-don't-say-no-to-a-Hartley fashion, he'd gotten angry and violent with her. But she claims not to have killed Hartley, that instead she'd fled when he'd been violent, and that was the last she saw of him. In the meanwhile, Murdoch, knowing that Hartley drowned but had escaped the river, had his lungs drained and found lavender oil in the lung water from a bath. Uh, but remember how Hartley had forced his way onto the rowing team? To be let in, they'd had to kick someone off. Horace Briggs. He was a phenomenal rower, but wasn't of the same status as the rest of the rowers. He worked at the club as a gardener, and when Hartley was found dead, the rowing team tried, unsuccessfully, to frame Briggs for the beating and the murder. But Briggs had another secret. He was in love with Minerva Fairchild, and she with him. She had planned to leave Hartley for Briggs when she broke off the engagement, but Briggs didn't know. Instead, the night that it happened, all he saw was Minerva fleeing from the club guesthouse, crying terribly. Furious at how Hartley had treated her, in a crime of passion, he snuck into the guesthouse and drowned Hartley in the bathtub. Incredibly tragic for Briggs, since if he had not killed Hartley that night, he may have gotten both his rowing spot and his lover back. Damn. And that's the episode. See, it's episodes like this that make me really glad that they're, like, only 40 minutes long and <sighs> they're fake as fuck. I mean... <laughs> yeah. I mean, that they're really fake. <laughs> Dude, oh my god. Because it is just tragic. Yeah. I could not do a true crime podcast. No, no, no. I This needs to be a murder mystery podcast where we look at... Cozy historical <sighs> murder mysteries. They're so much more removed right like we don't have to face yes. it head on we nope. don't have to actually think about it like nope, it's, nope. it's all like sweetened up <laughs> so nope. that we don't have to insanitize that's the word to describe you know murder mysteries like this yeah no nope. total fantasy <laughs> we just get to focus on like the detectiving and the the fun like right clue aspect stuff Rather than having to think about, like, people's lives ruined. <laughs> right. And yeah. I mean, like, it's not like they don't acknowledge that, you know, it's a what-if situation. But it's like, if you had given this to me 
in like a two hour long feature film and that you know was the ending I would be like I can't do this anymore (laughs) I can't it's too tragic it's the if only if only kind of yeah it's yeah torture Mm -hmm. and instead that's just like a minute yeah little thing it's literally less than (laughs) a minute of him being like oh my bad everything (laughs) would be different if i had just talked to minerva (laughs) yeah oh yeah very sad so i guess also in this episode the sort of subplot that's going on is murdoch and ogden yeah where murdoch um has made this pneumograph has made this lie detector um and initially like sets it up so that in he's strapped into it and he can be tested um yes he he'll be tested uh crabtree will go through some questions and test him so that he can show everyone how it works and he's so confident (laughs) he is so confident and then ogden shows up and they're like "Ooh, wait i got a better question because suddenly your blood pressure or whatever's all gone up now that Ogden's nearby. It's like, do you do you have a crush on Ogden or whatever? And he's like, <laughs> he gets caught and uh, is like, get me out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think Crabtree really like shines in this episode too. Like anytime he's on, he's doing something great. And like, yeah. you know, he, he's the one getting Murdoch out and like, he did not have to bring it up, but he was no. like, I don't think anyone noticed, sir. And it's like, Murdoch didn't ask. <laughs> you, yeah, you <laughs> or me, the or the worse. level going up or whatever. Like, don't worry, I don't think anyone. Yeah, <laughs> just and, get me out of this thing. <laughs> and then, like, when they find, when they're, like, looking at um, the waterfront and checking the soil there, then mm-hmm. and that they're looking for sand and clay, not just sand. And you know, Crabtree comes in with an absolutely stellar bit of monologue. <laughs> he says, like, you know, that clay is really taking off and that his neighbor has taken to oh, right. to sculpting with clay and that he's made a bust of his wife and it's rather ugly and it looks very bad with bulging eyes and is sort of reptilian and honestly I'd really rather stop talking about it now if you don't mind (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh yeah and he's all jittery from the coffee Oh yeah. Where he's like he's like, Wow, like, this coffee, sir, this is amazing. You you really have to try it. I've um, had four cups this morning already. <laughs> and then you see him there th- and then he just gets handed the cups at the end and then suddenly like the cups are rattling in his hands. It's yeah. Very good. Very subtle and very good. <laughs> and then the recurring jokes about oh the lavender oils as well. Like it's oh, like right. you would normally expect these kinds of jokes to be like one per episode and it's like every single crab tree scene he's got something golden going on yep and that he was like <laughs> it looks like lavender like bath oils smells like lavender they're really nice which says my aunt my aunt says yeah <laughs> <laughs> they make the skin smooth according to her <laughs> i've heard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's okay, Crabtree. You can take a bath. <laughs> we won't judge you. 
yeah, so we get a lot of a lot of cute um Crabtree moments. And then we also get like a lot of Murdoch and Ogden cl- very clearly being sweet for each other, particularly like I think we've seen some scenes where Ogden seems like she's kind of sweet on Murdoch. Mm-hmm. But we haven't yet quite seen it reversed, right? We haven't seen Yeah, cuz he's quite stoic. As blatantly how Murdoch yeah, how he feels about her. And oh my god, I don't know if you remember, there was a scene that was one of those fantasy scenes, but we don't know it's a fantasy until suddenly they stop. I mean, you think, <laughs> Kalinda, <laughs> like, you don't think I remember that scene? <laughs> like, <laughs> I almost forgot about it until just now. That was the thing. Like, oh my God. I, like I was yelling. <laughs> like, I think I was literally vocal when it happened because they're, okay, so they're talking Right. Um, she she has just like <laughs> turned a She's lung just upside down. <laughs> squeezed out the liquid from a man's lung, like yeah, <laughs> bare hands, uh. wrenched it out of that lung. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> like that was the thing that struck me the most. Is that because, as you're probably gonna say, is that like they look at each other and then there's a beat. Where they're looking at each other's eyes, and then they immediately he goes to kiss her, and they start making out basically. Oh yeah, but- he just goes, he just goes for it. He says her name, and they look at each other all longingly, and then he just goes for it, and they start making right. out. And I'm like, yeah. what is happening? What right. is and happening? Like, my whole thought process during that whole sequence was, oh, oh my god, this is a dream. This is a dream. She just yeah. She just held a man's lung in her hands. Like, she hasn't even washed her hands. She is, like, (laughs) touching his hair. (laughs) And and then, like, I'm like, this has to be a dream. But then it goes on for just long enough that I'm like, is this a dream? Yeah. I don't remember this. Like, (laughs) like, this has to. Where I'm, like, doubting my own knowledge of the show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then, of course, it is like a, yeah, a fantasy or imagining. Uh, it's a daydream. It just suddenly cuts, and then it's you know her saying, "Murdoch, Murdoch, you know you were gonna, <laughs> right. you were gonna say something, you were gonna ask me something," and then he just very s- no swag. What's, what's the word? What's the yeah? Like what's what's the word I'm looking for? Start start starting and stoppingly. Do you know what I mean? Kind Staccato. of stiltingly. <laughs> I I think stiltingly is maybe the word I'm looking for just says may i have my lung water and that's it (laughs) yeah i can't believe that's what he says he says those exact words because i wrote it down as a quote because i was like excuse me (laughs) may i have my lung water and then she's just like yeah and then hands it to him and (laughs) he goes oh my god the look on his face like how how am i (laughs) how am i still alive (laughs) yeah Oh my gosh. Plus there's like blood in it. It's like not Oh my cute. god. No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What what a moment. I was like, I can't believe this is happening. Episode eight and they're kissing. Wow. I know. I am quite surprised at how quickly that crept up on us, especially because like like that wow. was one of the reasons why it was I just completely blanked out any background of of um his previous fiance, Liza. Because so quickly, we're not even talking about her anymore, right? Yeah. She's no longer a mention. 
And he's like clearly attached to Ogden. Yes. And I totally get it. She is the bomb deity. Heck yeah. She's amazing. She's smart. She's funny. She's caring. She's gorgeous. She She's empathetic. She does not have the best costumes yet, but she will get better costumes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just want to ma- I just want to find a way to do my hair like her hair. Well, you have to have long hair. Oh, you my do. Hair's getting kind of long, but mine's not. Um, that it's, long. Not, it's not quite. Yeah, it's not quite that long. But those. Well, I like, bet you, my mom could show you how to do your hair like that. Yeah, the curls that she has on the top. Yeah, you kind of gotta like pin it up, and then put mm-hmm. it into a braid. It is mwah, very good. All right. Any other tidbits from the show? Any other things that you want to talk about? Well, yeah, I guess I want to give a shout out to the last dress that Minerva wears. I don't know if you noticed, Mm -hmm. but it is this beautiful cream trimmed dress. And it's got like, I don't even know how to describe it, but like the neck and sleeves has this really cool like pleated... Uh, see-through fabric going on and then like the whole body of it and into the skirt has like these these layers of like laced it's so good it is like the best dress we've seen on this show so far wow and I don't remember it at all (sighs) it's okay I will post a picture of it okay fabulous because it is I had to take like I tried to take as many screenshots of it as I could. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, no, I guess I don't have anything anything more to add about the episode. But I guess it is also like kind of cool, that, you know, we've learned something new about Dr. Ogden that we didn't quite I mean, we could have probably deduced yeah. given that she is a a female doctor that she you know, came from privilege to be able to study medicine. But yeah, we found out that she is from one of these upper class families that would belong to a club like the King's Club. And, you know, at the very end, you know, she encourages uh, Minerva Fairchild to leave that life behind the same way she did. And I think that's really... That's a really cool thing to add to her character, and I think it'll also get more elaborated on, but it also, like, kind of shows what industrialization has done for class systems Mm -hmm. in that, like, you know, Murdoch and Dr. Ogden are colleagues and are smitten, and, you know, Murdoch is from, is the son of a sailor, and Dr. Ogden is kind of more of a higher class Mm -hmm. and this isn't like this wouldn't stop them at this time yeah yeah i i um was curious about the king's club there was something Mm -hmm. about the way that they mentioned it that made me think that maybe it was like a real kind of club is it not but i don't think so i was trying to find anything about it and i wasn't I wasn't finding anything. So from my understanding, it, it's just, it, it's a fantastical name made up for the a, show. A fictional name? It's not. Yeah. It's not a real club. But I kind of, there was something about the idea of like 
And I think it's probably because there's movies about the king's men and that kind of thing that made me think, like, these are king's boys or king's men. <laughs> so then I had got it into my head that it was like, that's a real phrase. So that must be related to this. <laughs> Which was not the case. <laughs> you want to go into some research? Yeah. Let's talk about some of our Googling. Yeah. And I'm going first. Yes. This week. Um, and so, given this episode, I ended up doing my kind of, my research on coffee. Because as we see in this episode, coffee is a new exciting drink that is being offered at King's College, but Murdoch has never had it before. And neither has Crabtree, apparently. So I did like the history and so on of coffee. So cool. So... First of all, coffee beans are not beans. They are the stone or pits of the fruit berry or cherry from a coffee plant. The fruit look like uh, cranberries, but are a bit larger, and they contain two pits with the flat sides together. Mm. One in ten will only have one pit inside. When this happens, the fruit is called a pea berry, and the bean is said to have more flavor than a regular bean, but this is kind of like, you know an old wives tale kind of thing. Uh. The coffee trees that the fruit grow on get to be about 16 to 33 feet high. They favor more temperate climates, varying on the type of coffee plant. The areas that meet the weather criteria for coffee growth is referred to as the bean belt or the coffee belt. Brazil has been and is still the largest grower of coffee, despite newer crops flourishing in places like Vietnam, Colombia, and the Philippines in the last few decades. The berries are almost always hand-picked, either selectively, meaning the fruit are picked for ripeness, or strip-picked when the berries of a tree are all collected at once. When selectively picked, the growers can sell them under a specification called Operation Cherry Red, and presumably with a higher premium. So after they are picked, they undergo either a wet processing method or a dry one. In the wet process, the flesh of the fruit is removed and the pit is fermented by being soaked in water for around two days. And then any excess residue, called, which is called mucilage, is rinsed off. The dry process consists of allowing the berry to sit in the sun for two to three weeks on brick or concrete, turning regularly. So this process is cheaper and was typically done for lower quality beans since it's so much simpler, but can now offer a higher premium if done well. So one rare and expensive process for, for removing the fruit from a bean includes feeding the coffee fruit to an animal. This animal is called the Asian palm civet, which from... Photos I looked at it, it looks like a pine marten crossed with a lemur type of animal. Whoa. So you feed the fruit to the civet, and then you roast the bean after it passes through them. So they poop out the bean, and then you yeah. roast the bean. And that's wow. like that's like a special coffee. That's a specialty. Wow, wow. <laughs> Some extra flavor there. I know, so I don't weird. know what it's supposed to actually do to the bean. <laughs> but, um, so the pit before roasting is referred to as a green coffee bean, and it is actually a light green color. It's, it's kind of like, it looks so much different from what, you know, the brown coffee beans we're used to. Whoa. 
The reason it has high caffeine content in the fruit and pit is to attract bees for pollination while also deterring animals and insects from eating it, since caffeine is an insecticide. Whoa. It's also why um, black tea has caffeine in it. I had no idea. Yeah. So there are a few different tales of the discovery of coffee. One describes a Moroccan Sufi mystic who was traveling in Ethiopia and noticed birds eating berries and showing a remarkable vitality, so he ate the berries and gained the same effects. Another story is that a sheik named Omar was banished from Mecca. So let me a little backtrack. I saw two versions of the story, one where they said he was banished from Mecca and another one where they said he was banished from Mocha, which is a place. Oh. And. <laughs> okay. So, Those are very different. But they are close geographically. And also, so like, he was banished from either Mecca or Mocha and was forced to shelter in a cave outside a city called Wusab in Yemen. The thing is, Wusab is closer to Mocha, but it makes more sense that he was banished from Mecca. Interesting. Because as a religious man... Yeah, that would be a big deal. Yeah. So I, I don't, I'm not quite sure which one it's supposed to be. But he was banished, chilled out in a city, in a cave outside a city. Starving, he ate berries from a shrub. See, that's another thing. It's like, if he was starving and he was banished from Mecca, why wouldn't he have just gone to a Yemen city? I, if, because yeah. Mocha's right there. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. So, he ate some berries from the shrub, but they were extremely bitter. So he roasted them, which in turn made them hard, so then he boiled them. And the fragrant brown beverage it produced helped abate his hunger, and the news of this miracle drink that allowed him to survive got back to Mecca, and he was welcomed back as a saint. Wow. The third, and I think the most common story, is that an Ethiopian goat herder named Kaldi noticed his goats became excited and began to dance when they ate the red berry from a bush, and so he tried the berry himself. After discovering its effects and, you know, getting starting to feel like dancing himself, he brought it to a nearby monastery and shared it with a monk. The monk disapproved of what the goat herder described and tossed the berries into the fire, hoping to get rid of them. But after a while, the beans began to roast and gave mm. off such a strong aroma that the other monks came running and the beans were quickly picked out of the fire and tasted. Mm. So this last story was first recorded hundreds of years after coffee began circulating. So it's probably not a reliable account, but it is a favored story and, you know, the most iconic. There will be a lot of coffee um, coffee companies and coffee shops that will refer to dancing goats or Caldi's beans and so on. Yeah. So, in the 15th century, coffee was being traded from Ethiopia to Yemen. So, I think the largest consensus is that, you know, people will say it's from Yemen or it'll be from Ethiopia, from what I could mm -hmm. tell, it's most likely from Ethiopia. Um, but they are very close, so that's why mm -hmm. it was mixing between them. So, coffee was being traded from Ethiopia to Yemen, where Muslim mystics would use them 
to concentrate and stay awake during long nights of prayer. So that's what its primary use was when it was first um, traded. Coffee helped during Ramadan celebrations to alleviate hunger while fasting during the day and to stay awake at night. Coffee became associated with the Prophet Muhammad's birthday because it was said to have been given to Muhammad by the Archangel Gabriel as a gift to mankind to replace wine, which was forbidden in Islam. So coffee came to be traded widely out of Mocha, which is a port city on the Red Sea coast of Yemen. By 1414, it was circulated to coffee houses in Mecca, Cairo, Baghdad, Aleppo, and as far north as Constantinople. A number of coffee houses cropped up in Cairo near the University of Azhar, which is a Sunni Islamic school and the oldest degree-granting university in Egypt. This increased its association with not just religious practice, but also learning. It was also especially associated with Sufism, which is a style of Islamic worship that emphasizes contemplation and looking inward for spiritual closeness to God. As a brain stimulant, coffee is great for improving one's focus and stamina for prayer and meditation. So Orthodox conservatives in Mecca banned it for a short while in the 17th century for being too stimulating. And then it was banned later that century in Cairo as well. It was banned in Ethiopia for over 100 years by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church because it was considered a Muslim drink and part of Muslim practice. Whoa. But that changed in the 19th century when this strict association had pittered out. Also, the emperor at the time was a regular coffee drinker, so he wanted Mm -hmm. to be able to drink it. By the 1500s, it had spread to Italy, probably first through Venice and Malta, and from there to the rest of Europe. Dutch trading companies won the race to obtain lime, live coffee plants in 1616 and began transporting plants for cultivation to the East Indies and America. So now it's in Europe, and there, coffee houses became places of multiculturalism, idea sharing, and news sharing. Coffee was something that stimulated discussions and sociability without the inebriation of alcohol. Sometimes you would hear a report of the market news before the papers were released to the wider public. So it was really effective if you're a businessman to to stay on top of coffee houses because you would get some insider knowledge. You could conduct business or discuss politics, industry, science, religion, art, so much so that in 1675 in England, King Charles II banned coffee houses because he was concerned about subversive discussions regarding the crown going on in them. Yeah. So the Enlightenment obviously flourished in these spaces. Just think of, like, Les Mis. Yeah. And Marius and his friends are students who congregate and discuss their ideas and plan their rebellion in a cafe. In some European countries, women were banned from them, I was hoping to find a botanist podcast to learn more about coffee as, like, a plant. And instead, I found a bunch of shows like Over Coffee or Coffee and Books or Coffee Uh, Talk, indicating that they were shows in which people have discussions. The coffee is not the topic. The coffee is for branding. They're using coffee in their title to market themselves as, like, 
We are going to have a thoughtful discussion or interview over coffee. We are cultured. It will be interesting and stimulating and smart and insightful. And mm. even now the association of coffee with intellectual pursuit is really glamorized. Like you're not really hustling unless you've got a cup of coffee in your hand or how it's the perfect accessory for your dark academia aesthetic. Like I, I didn't really ever think about it yeah. as being like having such a historical precedent in that respect that it has always had this association. So Balzac is reported to have built the French realist movement on 40 cups a day. This is likely untrue, because that's ridiculous. But we know he drank a lot of it and credited it with helping him write. So he wrote, when you have coffee, ideas, this is a quote from him, ideas quick march into motion like battalions of a grand army to its legendary fighting ground, and the battle rages. Memories charge in, bright flags on high. The cavalry of metaphor deploys with a magnificent gallop. The artillery of logic rushes up with clattering wagons and cartridges. On imagination's orders, sharpshooters sight and fire. Forms and shapes and characters rear up. The paper is spread with ink, for the nightly labor begins and ends with torrents of this black water as the battle opens and concludes with black powder. He's like, kind of nuts, but that was pretty good writing. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so we know he preferred a very strong cup of coffee with as little water to coffee ground ratio as possible if he mm -hmm. wasn't simply eating the grounds dry. Oh my he, god. He wrote an essay titled The Pleasures and Pains of Coffee, in which he details the effects of too much coffee as including violent thirst and dry skin. He wrote, You will fall into horrible sweats, suffer feebleness of the nerves, and undergo episodes of severe drowsiness. I don't know what would happen if you kept at it then. A sensible nature counseled me to stop at this point. Wait, that he... So was he going through coffee? So is he going through withdrawal? No. This is no, if you he was have having too much. much. Okay. And he was also, like, cold brewing. Ah, yeah. I don't know if, if that was common at the time, if people were already doing that. But he was doing that. And so the whole, the whole essay he wrote, The Pleasures and Pains of Coffee, detailed his advice on how to drink coffee. It has to be pulverized, not ground. It should be brewed mm. cold, not hot. How it can affect your stomach. Um, also, like, what type of man can or cannot withstand the, <laughs> the abuse of coffee? <laughs> like, yeah. That, you know, like, he has, he has different methods for making coffee. And, you know, he even stipulates, like, I would only recommend this for men with thick, dark hair and, you know, strong constitutions is basically what he's saying. But it's like, does that have anything to do with the color of your hair? I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, he kind of talks about it as if, like, if you can't handle your coffee, you have a stomach of paper mache. You know, like, you're oh. not, you're weak. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> anyway, so once when experience, so Balzac, once when ex experiencing stomach cramps, 
he insisted he was only having three cups a day, implying that was the minimum. Oh my gosh. Of his daily cups of coffee. Yeah. Um, so other notable writers and thinkers congregated in cafes and coffee houses, including Voltaire, Bach, Sigmund Freud, Gustav Klimt. These were often like hubs of cultural and intellectual movements. I have a fun fact about Bach and coffee. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he wrote something called the Coffee Cantata. Mm-hmm. It's basically like a miniature comic opera about coffee. Yeah? Yeah. And like coffee houses. And um, I had a friend in college who did the whole Coffee Cantata and like put it on as a production. <laughs> and she was basically singing about just how much she loved coffee and working at a coffee shop, mm -hmm. um, which was how I learned originally some of this stuff about coffee houses being hubs of thought and how, like, women shouldn't be in them as well. Some mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. I just looked it up because I, I for whatever reason, I f at first thought that it was Schubert, but it was Bach. And it seems like he composed it sometime between 1732 and 1735. Yeah. But it's pretty music. Coffee. Coffee. Oh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then a big old run about coffee. hyper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and high-pitched. It's, it's, it's fun. <laughs> it's some fun music. <laughs> so, yeah. So, another example of, of a cultural mm -hmm. hub where coffee mm -hmm. is the centerpiece. After the First World War, many artists and intellectuals of the time, such as Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Picasso, Jean-Paul Sater, Simone de Beauvier, James Joyce, were known to frequent and socialize at a cafe in Paris called wow. Le Deux Magots. There's lots of stories about this cafe. One that I like um, is a story of a surrealist poet named Paul Eluard introducing Picasso to his future muse, 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 <laughs> what happens when you read off the page, um, his future muse and lover, a photographer named Dora Mar, in Le Domago Cafe. So I really liked how this person described it. I, I found a blog where they detailed the account. I knew of it happening, and it, I was like, I'm not making this up. I know this really happened. What's the mm -hmm. actual story? Who was it? But, so I found it, and this blogger wrote it out like this. While the great painter and his friend, the poet, Paul Eluard, were seated at a table in the café Le Domago, their attention was drawn to Dora Mar, seated nearby. According to Francois Gillot, another of Picasso's lovers, the one he had after Dora Mar. Mar was wearing, this is also a quote, now it's a quote within a quote. <laughs> she was wearing black gloves with little pink flowers appliqued on them. She took off the gloves and picked up a long pointed knife, which she began to drive into the table between her outstretched fingers to see how close she could come to each finger without actually cutting herself. From time to time, she missed by a tiny fraction of an inch, and before she stopped playing with the knife, her hand was covered with blood. 
Picasso was transfixed. He later confided to Gillot that it was this act that decided him to take up with Dora. And he asked Eluard to introduce them because Eluard was a mutual friend. And they just happened to be at the same cafe. So Dora Mar, oh my God. like I said, she was a photographer. She frequently had a model named Noosh Eluard, who was the wife of Paul Eluard, who introduced Picasso and Dora Mar together. So it just kind of shows how, like, how this cafe was the epicenter for many of these figures, right? Yeah. She was playing, like, the knife game, which I remember yeah. basically just, like, going in between all of her fingers against the table. Which, exactly. like, I've, I saw a video of for the first time, I don't know, in 2011, and I was like, why would anyone do this? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, I feel like that was really popular. Like, it was common to do that in high school, but you'd use, like, a pen <laughs> or a butter yeah. knife. And she was using no. a, a sharp pen knife. Yeah. I saw, like, some viral videos of someone doing it with, like, a kitchen, like, a huge kitchen knife. Oh, Jesus, no. And I'm like, Ex- what? Yeah. Gonna cut off a finger. <laughs> but so, apparently, they, yeah, so after Picasso was introduced to Doromar, he asked for her gloves, her bloody gloves. Oh, my God. And kept them in a box with his mementos. What? What? Odd. I know. What I mean, they're all weird. People. Wow. They're all weird. <laughs> but, um, but Dora Mar is actually pretty cool. If anyone was interested in finding out more about her, she's really awesome. She's a great artist in her own right. After she was basically abandoned by Picasso, she went on to um, work as an abstract painter. She contributed a lot to surrealist art. She was a great artist in her own right. But yeah, that apparently this like this little this little introduction, this little moment with the penknife, like what was so alluring about her was this sort of like masochistic, dangerous tendency, kind of almost yeah. self-destructive tendency she had. Um, yeah, it's like I think you both need some therapy. Anyways, um, <laughs> bringing it back to coffee. In America, going going all the way back, in America, during the Revolution and following the Boston Tea Party, coffee became the drink of choice to replace tea. Mm-hmm. It was still a niche or novelty drink to most Americans pretty much until the American Civil War. Confederate soldiers were given lots of coffee to help them stay active and alert, and it became a common refreshment within the army. They would have it with meals and in between meals. Anytime Mm -hmm. they started a new thing, they would have a coffee beforehand. When the war was over and all these men became, went home, all these men became regular coffee drinkers, which inflated the demand for coffee and making it a household Mm -hmm. product. Today, some little fun facts here, today... The U.S. is the highest consumer of coffee worldwide, and New York City consumes seven times more coffee than any other city in the U.S. Wow. I know. And I mean- City never sleeps, am I right? I think that's (laughs) That has that tagline. I don't remember. Wait, what city is it that never sleeps? I don't know, but that's, that's a tagline for some city, isn't it? I think- Lots of cities are called that. 
I'll just do a little, a little goog. But I think New York is one of them. A nickname for New York City. Oh, hey. Nailed it. First try. Okay. First try. But yeah, so these statistics I don't think are per capita. Like, we're the highest consumer of coffee. We also have a lot of people, right? That's true. New York consumes seven times more coffee than any other city in the U.S. I think that's pretty dramatic, but it's also not per capita. Like, there's a lot of people in New New York City. That is also a good point. But that's still a lot of coffee. That is a lot of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And over half of adult Americans drink coffee every day, which Mm -hmm. also, like, I mean, if I think about it, it's like, of course, that's like, it's a staple. They have your morning cup of coffee. But when I read it out like that, that like over 50% of Americans have it every day. Just makes it seem more bananas. Anyways. Yeah. This I don't have written down, but another cool little tidbit is that apparently, I think Sweden, you know, the government started putting together like emergency supplies, a stockpile of food and necessary supplies for if there were ever a disaster of some kind. And they were going to, they had coffee, but they were going to get rid of their stores of coffee for this, you know, doomsday supply. And the people were like, no, we need the coffee. We don't want more sugar. We don't want more wheat (laughs) in place of the coffee. The coffee is required criteria. And, um, (laughs) And then another cool little info was that so in Italy, one of the reasons why chains like like Western, like American chain coffee chains haven't cropped up in Italy was because, well, first of all, they developed a specific way of making a cup of coffee where it was a single serving. It was espresso, basically. Mm-hmm. They, they created the process of making espresso. So it was a single serving in a small cup. And to keep prices low for coffee, they set it up so that there were just coffee bars so that the, there was no um, waiting staff or service charge. You just make the coffee, hand it over the bar, they, they knock it back, and then they're on their way. Just a shot. Just a little shot of coffee. Yeah. And so for a very long time, Italy maintained that coffee could only cost so much that it had a mm-hmm. it had a maximum cap so that didn't allow coffee houses or cafes like are more common for us mm-hmm. because they didn't want people to dawdle because the point was to keep the price low and so it's only been recently that you would see a little cafe like that or coffee coffee chain like Starbucks Mm. And why the coffee bar maintained a stronghold in Italy. <laughs> Which I also thought was cool. Because that's like legislation that dictated how coffee was had. They didn't have the same kind of like, oh, we all hang out at a coffee house and chit chat. Mm-hmm. No. You take your coffee and you go. You know? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's coffee. Nice. She didn't have a huge prevalence in the plot of the episode, but 
I still thought it was fascinating. Yeah. No, I, w- I was very curious about it as well when they brought it up and how, like, it was supposedly some new thing. And Murdoch being like, the- "How we have tea and tea tastes so much better. This isn't going <laughs> to take off. <laughs> it's so addicting, though. Mm-hmm. As we talked about last week with Crabtree being open-minded, he's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know about that. I really think this is going to take off. (laughs) All right. My turn then? Yes, if you please. All right. So I researched this week the lie detector. Oh, yeah. And just lie detecting sort of generally. You know, watching a lot of like leverage where a big part of it is because they're con men, right? Mm -hmm. Is being able to read people and then like work on them with suggestion and like cool stuff like that like I want to know more Mm -hmm. about that Mm -hmm. but like the lie detector thing that's another thing is like it's part of it is you know seeing when somebody's lying seeing when somebody's nervous knowing how to alleviate their concern or how to make Mm -hmm. them comfortable Mm -hmm. I think that's so cool does that make me evil (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that I want to no. manipulate people. <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean... Yes, but no. Well, it's funny because I, I didn't think about it that way at first. But now, when you say it that way, <laughs> that the desire is to manipulate, um, yeah, it does sound a little evil. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'll start off with the pneumograph, or pneumatograph, which is the device we see Murdoch use in the show. Mm-hmm. It's a device by definition for recording velocity and force of chest movements during respiration. Hmm. So a flexible rubber vessel equipped with sensors is attached to the chest. It really doesn't say much else. Um, No information on who invented it. Well, it sort of sounds like, you know, when you get your your pulse taken? Yeah. And they wrap that thing around you and then it Mm -hmm. blows up? Yeah. Sounds like that, but for your chest. Yeah. Sucks. (laughs) I know. Sounds unpleasant. (laughs) Yeah. So there are other physiological means to test if someone's lying, as Murdoch suggested in the show. Uh, There was a technique in ancient China that placed dry rice in the mouth of a suspect. And if they had rice sticking to their tongue when they tried to spit it out, they were considered guilty, since having a dry mouth was supposed to mean that you were stressed and therefore lying. Wow, that's harsh. Yeah, and it's funny, he says something like that, about, like, detecting saliva in the mouth in the show. And I was like, what is he talking about? He also mentioned something about um, passing around an egg. Yeah. And I didn't find this that story when I was in my, in my research. I couldn't find out more about that because I was curious what that was about. But my guess is just, like, if you drop it, <laughs> it's because you're nervous. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You break it, um, you bought it. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. There, there was another story about like pulling a donkey's tail after it had been cutted, co- coated in soot. But if you didn't do it, it meant you were guilty, even though you were told not to do it, because what? you couldn't help. Because most, because ev- no one could help themselves. So if you weren't doing it, it was because you were trying to be extra good because you didn't want to get caught at something else. Like I don't know. It was. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> it was something that didn't make a whole lot of sense, um, <laughs> the story that I was reading. But anyway, yes. 
Uh, more recently, in the early 1900s, there were experiments to see if they could spot physiological changes when someone lied. William Moulton Marston apparently studied blood pressure and noticed an increase in blood pressure as an indicator of guilt. He reported with 90 to 100% accuracy, and later in 1913, he looked more specifically into changes in blood pressure during deception for criminal suspects. But he didn't test the donkey theory. No. <laughs> I would like a test of the donkey theory. <laughs> I have no idea what the donkey theory is about. <laughs> So this paved the way for what we know best as the lie detector test, or polygraph. This measures not just one, but a number of physiological indicators, including blood pressure, but also pulse, respiration, and skin conductivity. It works much like we've seen in the episode, where a baseline is first established using only yes or no questions to figure out what truth looks like. Mm -hmm. So asking questions like, is your name Ivy? Does your family have any pets? Stuff you already know the answers to. Mm -hmm. It was invented in 1921 by John Augustus Larson, a medical student at the University of California, Berkeley, and a police officer of the Berkeley Police Department. Uh, but, well, polygraph tests are famously bad and unreliable. But that isn't because of a fault with the polygraph machine necessarily, it does a great job at measuring all of the physiological responses that your body is having. The problem is that there are no specific physiological reactions associated with lying. If you're afraid while you're lying or anxious, those could be picked up, sure, but you could be afraid or anxious for any number of reasons during an interrogation, like I don't know, the fact that you're being interrogated, that you're really stressed about being found guilty for a crime you didn't commit. But similarly, the opposite, on the opposite end, if you're a skilled or compulsive liar, then you may have no physiological response to lying, leaving the polygraph nothing to pick up. And also famously mm -hmm. are people who have made books or DVDs about beating polygraph tests. So clearly they are fallible. Mm-hmm. Despite this, it really took off and is still used. In 2018, there was a report in Wired magazine that said an estimated 2.5 million polygraph tests were given each year in the U.S. Uh, it goes on, the average cost to administer the test is more than $700 and is part of a $2 billion industry. Yikes. Right? Big yikes. Big yikes energy. Uh, however, in Canada... There was a decision in the Canadian Supreme Court called R.V. Bayland, which rejected the use of polygraph results as evidence in court back in 1987. And in Ontario, the use of polygraphs is not permitted by an employer, though in other provinces it still is. And police in Canada do still have the authority to get a polygraph as part of an investigation, though it can't be admitted as evidence in court. Mm-hmm. So, did you catch the employers? Uh, right. Yeah, employers. In the U.S., there's something called the Employee Polygraph Protection Act of 1988, which generally prevents employers from using lie detector tests either for pre-employment screening or during the course of employment. But, you know, of course, with certain exemptions. And as of 2013, roughly 70,000 job applicants were polygraphed by the federal government every year. 
Yeesh. I know. I'm like, what? I mean, is that because it's like a certain, like... <sighs> like part of a screening process? Yeah, like if you're going to go into the CIA or something. And I mean, wanna... maybe. But the dumb thing is they don't work. Right. <laughs> they're unreliable. Maybe, so why? Maybe they're so using why... <laughs> it to be like, can you keep your cool under pressure? <laughs> like, maybe. But it just seems so dumb. It's like yeah. really, it's really pseudoscience and right. clearly like took off in America, in Berkeley with the guy who made the test and was working for the Berkeley de- Police Department, right? Immediately shady when you said that it took off in America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, it it is also, I think, used in Japan as well in employment, um, but like, oh, it's geez. just... It just, it it's not reliable. It's so silly. Yeah. I mean, like, I can understand maybe I'm being too soft here, but sort of like the same way, like, when I did blood spatter analysis, that yeah. it might be useful for conducting an investigation, but yeah. I totally agree that, like, in court, it it is not a deciding, you know, element. Yeah. Yeah, like, in the show, the way that they use it is not necessarily, like, finding answers by inferring because the machine said that they lied, right? It is very much like the machine says they're lying, so therefore they're going to push the issue mm-hmm. with the with the suspect or the witness to get more information that way, to get them yeah. to confess more. I think also in this specific episode... The interviewees can see the results of the machine. They can see that they are caught, right? Yeah. All it does is go up or down. So you know it goes up and you're caught kind of thing, yeah. Whereas, like, if someone was interviewing me and I couldn't tell what the results were as they were happening, you know, Mm -hmm. an interrogation or, like, moving an interrogation along in a certain way would not be as effective. Yeah. Because I, I would have no notion if I got away with it or not. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, that's that's a lot of stuff about polygraph and the lie detector. Uh, one other thing that I just kind of wanted to talk about is that there are other methods of trying to detect if someone is lying. And famously, there's the show Lie to Me. Do you remember this TV yeah. show? Where he can like just watch someone and watch their eye movements and like twitches in the mouth and how like their face says it all kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and that also is a lot of pseudoscience it seems yeah that there's really like not a lot of stuff but it is also used um in a similar way that the polygraph is in interrogations where like investigators can supposedly be like trained in these different ways of weeding out deception. And it's like, it's just not, it's not an exact science. Mm-hmm. There is no physiological way to tell if someone is or isn't lying. It's not that, not that any of us really know. Maybe there's like some brain waves that go off. Mm, um, yeah. But if the person. That would be way more expensive. <laughs> it's like, let's have an yeah. interrogation and an MRI scanner. <sighs> Yeah, right? But also, like, you can still get outlier cases of someone who 
is a compulsive liar, mm-hmm. right? Or who just really believes something that is still yeah. untrue. You can still believe something is true, be saying it as if it's true and it's a lie. Mm-hmm. Like, there's all kinds of stuff that just, like... Well, there's also lots of people, yeah. especially murderers, who don't mm-hmm. get nervous. Yeah. Yeah, being nervous, which is mo- which is really what a polygraph is good at picking up on, is mm-hmm. not a sign that you're lying. Again, you're in an interrogation. <laughs> like, yeah. if you were really level-headed about being in an interrogation, I would be like, are you okay? <laughs> yeah, that's more concerning. That's the donkey <laughs> that test. Be- Honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, so that was my research on lie detectors. Cool, cool, cool. I think we smashed it. Ooh, we hit it out of the park with this one. We did it. All right, so that it? Yeah, I think so, unless... Did I look up... Oh, I guess I looked up one cool thing, because I was also thinking about doing um, rowing. Mm -hmm. And one cool thing that sort of came out of my cursory look into it is that the... um, I believe it would have been the 1897, 96 Olympics... Mm-hmm. It was the first time rowing was admitted as a sport in the Olympics. Oh, whoa. That's cool. So that would have been the Olympics that this episode is specifically referring to. Yeah. So they all got there, and then the race didn't happen. What? Because the weather conditions weren't correct. Were bad. <gasps> what? So the Olympics that they're talking about in this episode never even took place. <gasps> wow. Well, the Olympic rowing competition, right? Wow. So it wasn't until the, the next Summer Olympics, or did they have Summer and Winter Olympics at this point? I don't know. It wasn't until the next rowing Olympic competition that they actually did have a race and a winner. Wow. That's amazing. I, that's, that's so cool. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was cool because it references the episode so clearly, right? But yeah, um, but yeah. Then there was a lot of other mumbo jumbo about like ro- rowing, and I did not pay attention to that. I mean, it just repeated what was said in the episode, which is that like, oh, it yeah. dates back all the way to Egyptian times, like ancient Egyptian times. I mean, Egyptian mm-hmm. times are still happening. Egypt's still there. <laughs> yes, but it's also kind <laughs> of like yes. <laughs> to me. It seems like well, weren't like the Vikings rowing weren't wasn't everybody rowing but I guess it's different (laughs) I don't know the particular style or something yeah canoe or shape Mm -hmm. so yeah that was a little little extra bonus for this week cool yeah so next week we will be doing episode nine from season one titled belly speaker i think it has something to do with the ventriloquist because like i was saying <gasps> belly speaker sounds like really exotic and cool and like mystical in a ways almost but it turns out belly speaker is just the direct english translation for ventriloquist which in latin just means belly speaker whoa you're yeah. full of fun facts today yeah maybe i could have waited until next week but i thought that was cool especially because like I mean, well, you took Latin, so... Yeah. And, like, the loquist, that one's kind of, like, you know, interlocutor, sort of got that going on, you know that. But the fact that, like, belly was, like, 
ventra or whatever that event yeah. right basically mm-hmm. is your mm-hmm. belly they were Whoa. like that's empty <laughs> your stomach is Ooh. a vent it's empty <laughs> i don't know so yeah i think we'll see someone doing ventriloquism which is cool. creepy and wrong and it's always my greatest fear <laughs> okay great I don't like so dolls. we're gonna have a fun like time yeah i mean i was re-watching season one of buffy and there is like it's always a monster of the week and there's not there's a lot of like oddball monsters that they've got going on especially in the first season they're just throwing everything at it one of them was a ventriloquist dummy i straight up skipped that And I was, like, being religious about watching every single episode. And I was like, not today, never again. I'm not watching that episode. That ventriloquist doll freaked me the hell out. And, uh, yeah, they are my greatest fear. All dolls, really. And also being buried alive. Please do not use this against me, public. (laughs) Anyways, yeah, so next week, Belly Speaker. And uh, if you like what you're listening to, give us a rating. Give us a wee review. Tell us tell us if you like us, please. And if you didn't like us, um, maybe you can keep it to yourself. And um, <laughs> you can find us please, on... Please, I'm very sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hurt our feelings. So <laughs> Please. <laughs> You can find us on Twitter at MurdochPod or Instagram at MurdochPodcast. And um, then uh, that's all, folks. And we'll catch you next week, right? Sometime in roughly a week at this rate. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) See you in about a week. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 